0: Welcome to today's episode of Let Me Be Brief. I am your co-host, Andy Rieger of J. Rieger & Co., joined as always by my buddy, Matt Basinger of Spark. We're in the Let It Fly Media studios. Today's episode is brought to you by M-Prize Bank. We have a great guest with us today, Mr. Glenn North. Glenn is the Director of Inclusive Learning and Creative Impact at the Kansas
1: City Museum, which is located in the historic Northeast. Glenn, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I already know you want to talk about the historic Northeast. You it's love talking about the historic things of Kansas City. It's a pretty cool neighborhood. We, we will get there. First, the softball question though, Glenn, what do you do? Wow, <laughs> so,
2: so the director of inclusive learning, I think the inclusive learning is pretty self-explanatory. We want to make sure um, that we are, um, incorporating and inviting historically underrepresented voices into the museum space, making sure that we're doing a good job of telling all the stories that help to create Kansas City's history. The creative impact part is to work with artists to come up with innovative programs and you know, really cool ways to continue to document Kansas City's history so that can be done through music, through poetry, through visual art. And so, um, Anna Marie uh, Tutera, who is our executive director, has always been an advocate for artists being at the table for cultural institutions, for civic institutions, and so she really created this position with the idea of making sure that artists really had a space in the Kansas City Museum.
1: Can I, Can I? Keep going for just a sec. So you've been in this role for? Since uh, late September, okay, so not so quite a year. Not quite a year. As you stepped into a new position, uh, a different place in where you're working, and this opportunity to really spotlight art and to spotlight inclusivity as far as the, the stories that we tell about Kansas City, what's maybe just one of your favorites that has come to light as you have been, you know, all in and with this endeavor?
2: Right. So there's several of them. Um, right now, uh, what's really present in my mind is that um, we're in the second phase of the renovation. So uh, the mansion, the long mansion where the museum is located, has an entire kind of campus. And so um, the daughter, Lulu, uh, Lula Long, was an equestrian. She loved show horses. And so um, the next phase of renovation is going to be with the carriage house and kind of show, um, show casing uh, a lot of the artifacts and items that are left over from her collection Uh, but there was a weather vane on top of the carriage house that had a woman in a horse carriage and a horse kind of leading it really cool so we wanted to recreate that and to do that uh, we commissioned ed dwight who's an incredible sculptor from kansas city kansas he was the first african-american invited into uh, uh, the space program under the kennedy administration had a just a very storied life you know like secret ops for the you know armed forces and assassination attempts and just an incredible um story but you know kind of changed direction and became this, you know, highly sought after sculptor for big uh, public art projects. So when we were talking to him last week about his ideas, he also thought it was important that this weather vane be an educational tool. And so he researched, you know, the history of uh, cowboys and the American Royal and we found out, you know, through his research uh, that Lula had a Well, it was the first I'd heard of it. let me say that, Um, that uh, she had a great relationship with Tom Bass, who back in the day was a black man who was just this incredible uh, horse whisperer before that term was invented, you know, just knew how to train horses for shows and and for riding and all of those things. And so they both worked together um, at the genesis of the uh, American Royal. So to kind of Mm -hmm. show that cross-cultural connection happening at a time when that wasn't popular, um, I think is just pretty incredible so that 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 particular project incorporates both of the things that i do art and education that's
0: awesome so the the kansas city museum just so the listeners are all Mm -hmm. about it so the kansas city museum is where we house all of kansas city's primary owned artifacts it is a part of the parks division of the government of kansas city missouri Uh, everything is publicly funded or through private campaign donations well i do want
2: to Sorry for interrupting. No, no, absolutely. We want to get it right for the the listeners. (laughs) So, yeah, so definitely we were under um, the umbrella of the Parks Department. But um, within the past uh, six months, uh, Anna Marie was able to establish a foundation. So uh, we now have a board, you know, we're a 501c3 that operates independently. But we do maintain a cooperative agreement with the Parks Department and with the city. You know, the the property in the mansion is owned by the city. But, yeah, I just wanted to make that. Decision, absolutely, because yep. that's a recent development
0: and so uh just got done with like we discussed a few minutes ago the first phase of the renovation which was a massive undertaking a 20 25 million million yes. dollar renovation but in the historic northeast if you're wanting to know about kansas city's history and you want to see something that is incredibly elegant like this mansion that it's built in from the 18 whatevers, and I want to ask about yeah, the sure, details yeah, on that sure. in a second because that story is fascinating about the yeah, Long family. Right, right. It is where you go to learn, and this renovation is just truly stunning. So, the mansion itself, the family, the Long family, they were in lumber, if right, I know right, correctly. Right. Could you sort of walk through who they were and how the mansion became what it became? And then how it became the Kansas City Museum. Yeah, so uh, Robert Long,
2: as you mentioned, was a a lumber baron, you know, from Kentucky. Um, Kind of a rags to riches story, came from a farming family. decided to move to Kansas City. Uh, He had started one business uh, that didn't work so well. And so the building that that business was housed in, um, he destroyed it and, uh, you know, sold the wood and then realized, hey, I could make money that way. And, you know, fast forward, became this huge man in the lumber industry. And so, In 1910, the mansion was built. Uh, There are some incredible um, old homes in the Northeast area. And the lot that he wanted is close to Kessler Park. And as you kind of swing around uh, to come up Gladstone, like where the mansion is, it's kind of like a reveal, like just a natural reveal. And there were three homes that lived on that, that were on that plot of land. And he paid to have them moved so that he could build the mansion there. He hired Henry Holt, who was a highly celebrated architect to build the mansion. It was the first million dollar mansion in Kansas City, the first mansion to have an elevator um, and, uh, he, uh, had it built, as I said, in 1910, had like 24 servants, you know, carriage house and all of these different, uh, other buildings on this, this plot of land. And so the, the renovation of the mansion, uh, started about seven years ago. I wasn't with the museum at the time, but the uh, idea was to do, um, as much as is possible uh, to restore it to its original splendor. So the, the lower level and the first floor really focus on the Long family, their contributions to Kansas City. He was a, ph- a philanthropist. You know, he was one of the one one of the primary funders for the World War One Memorial mm-hmm. a just very well respected and upstanding family. Um, I'm not <laughs> up to this point found many skeletons in the closet right in terms of you know some of the other uh, leaders in Kansas City that helped to develop the town that you know kind of have kind of a checkered past but having said all that um, then so the uh, museum used to be a natural history museum but uh, at one point the museum and Union Station were working very closely together so the current museum staff helped to establish Science City at Union Station so that then the Kansas City Museum was free to do this deep dive into Kansas City's history. And so on the second and third floors, we
0: tell that story. Mm. And it like I said before, it is stunning and the plans for the remaining renovations to take place over the next call it five years. Right. Are absolutely stunning as just well. just incredible. Yeah. So
1: let's talk a little bit about you and about your role. One of the things that we've not yet mentioned is, is you have Uh, a pretty significant history with poetry and with how poetry plays a role in the art scene here in Kansas City. So let's tangent for just a second and tell us about yourself, the poet oh sure sure
2: (laughs) so um back in 94 i moved to dc i had been kind of bumming around kansas city working various jobs but not really feeling fulfilled uh i have a frat brother who is you know relatively wealthy moving to uh, dc to uh, finish uh, his medical residency at howard university since i hadn't finished undergrad yet he's like come on man i got connections i can get you back in school you can get your life on track so i moved there with him and you know to be honest with you dc's very vibrant, there's stuff to do every night. So I did not get in school immediately, but really started (laughs) (laughs) hanging out a lot um, in in D.C. and discovered uh, that there was a really vibrant spoken word scene there. I hadn't even heard that term before I had moved to D.C. And so I got involved in that. And uh, when I moved back to Kansas City, uh, there wasn't really much of anything like that happening, like the performative, you know, spoken word kind of poetry readings. And so I'd been hearing about the revitalization efforts in 18th and Vine, and figured that would be a great location to have this this poetry reading. So we started it at this little club called the Monte Gras, little really a dive bar. Uh, But it had a lot of history, like Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, and a lot of the greats that performed in that space. And we started this monthly open mic called Verbal Attack. Uh, The folks at the Jazz Museum hired me uh, during their opening weekend to do a poem. I got paid $50. So so I guess this makes me a professional. Uh, Began doing a lot of work with them, exploring the relationship between jazz and poetry and doing workshops for kids. And Eventually got hired there, and I was given the title Poet and Residence. And that just changed the whole trajectory of my career as a poet. Before it had been, you know, kind of an avocation. I loved it, but didn't see how I could build a career as a poet. But the American Jazz Museum provided me with that opportunity. And then, you know, slowly but surely just began making connections with other organizations, other cultural institutions, really started to see how, you know, I worked with an organization on the Kansas side with Marsha Pomeroy. Shout out to Marsha. I haven't talked to her in years. But um, she got me a job doing poetry workshops and after-school uh, programs on the Kansas side. So all of these things just kind of coalesced, and I just began to develop a reputation in Kansas City for doing, like, community-based work using poetry as a vehicle to speak to social justice issues and for youth advocacy.
1: And, and so with that, and we'll, we'll start to get back into Kansas City Museum shortly, but, like, art has such a fascinating place in culture because... Um, there's not a lot of folks who I think can take art and turn it into a vocation, mm-hmm. can turn it into something that yeah. actually makes money and allows people to call it pay the bills, right? Right, right. But uh, a world without art is really, really sad. Yeah. And so, kind of transitioning that now into your role, like, how do you work with students or folks in the community to help emphasize the importance of art, not just historically in Kansas mm-hmm. City, um, but through the museum on a day-to-day basis? What is that? Yeah. Like, look like brass tacks.
2: So so um, I'm going to try to answer that question. It's like nine <laughs> questions, so, you know, you just no, basically, you just sure. roll with it, yeah. <laughs> I want to make sure I'm tracking, but but what what I'll say, so, you know, I talked about bumming around Kansas City after not completing college. Where, well, one of the reasons I didn't finish college, I was going to Lincoln University in Jeff City, uh, Missouri, a historically black college, and there were a lot of things going on with historically black institutions during that time, kind of like the systemic... Um, efforts to, to, to dismantle the original mission of, of black colleges so uh, Lincoln University was about to be turned into like this agriculture school or at least there were some plans to, to do that and it was really going to have a negative impact on the black student population and that kind of triggered my activism and I became very um, you know, people use the word "radical," um, but I was—I was the campus radical, <laughs> for lack of a better way to put it—and uh, ended up getting kicked out of school for, like, they said I attempted to incite a riot with this speech I gave, right? And so. That was a really difficult time. Uh, I'd always written poetry and then, you know, began kind of leaning heavily upon poetry, just, you know, therapeutically. Um, but then as I began to develop a reputation here in Kansas City, I learned that I could say the exact same things I was saying at Lincoln University and getting all this trouble uh, for my, my my beliefs and, and just my... Um, just really wanting to to see change, right? Mm -hmm. But I found that poetry does that in a way, and art does that in a way that just resonates with people on an emotional level. So I think we need all of these things. You know, we're at a very difficult juncture, I think, you know, as it pertains to race relations and social justice and inclusivity right now. But there's something about art that just kind of transcends the facts and figures and uh, touches people in a way that I think is really important and vital if we're, if we're going to see change take
1: place. Yeah. I was, and maybe this is a really dumb question, so feel free to make fun of me later. But what is the difference? I will definitely <laughs> make fun <laughs> of all your dumb you always, questions. You always and and do. writing this one yes. down so that I have your dumb question list. Do you feel like there's a definitive difference between a speech and a poem?
2: yeah yeah i think and the the definitive difference they're definitely related right but is the tone tenor and intent right and so with the speech you know you're you're attempting to persuade oftentimes but it's just really kind of oftentimes matter of fact you can weave poetic elements into a speech i mean you listen to dr king or malcolm x and you see where the two kind of meet but with a poem just the the this musicality that you strive for in language, the um, the kind of imagery that you can create in ways that speeches often don't, I think provides, as I said, a way to touch people's hearts in a way that speeches may not always. Now, not to say that speeches aren't important, and I sure. still will give a good speech, don't get me wrong, but yeah, I just really started to see, and it was uh, amazing to me that I was saying all those things I had been saying prior to getting kicked out of school, but I was getting a totally different
0: response. Yeah. All right, my last business question getting back to the Kansas City Museum <laughs> for the last bit. Sure. Is finish the renovation mm-hmm. right as we were filming this in April of 2022. Mm-hmm. COVID is, knock on wood, hopefully dissipating to the point that people are getting back to their normal lives for good. Mm-hmm. How is it going with bringing people back to the museum now that we are exiting a pandemic phase Mm -hmm. and this massive renovation that has been such a priority of focus is now completed?
2: Yeah, so... It has been really busy. I think people are really excited about being able to, to connect in person as opposed to virtually. So we stay busy. You know, um, last night our gift shop was a abuzz. Uh, uh, the, the the manager of the gift shop, Paula, does the Shop and Sip events. Uh, Paul Gutierrez, who is over our culinary arts program and public programming, had a chef doing a demonstration. Um, there's a cafeteria and a soda fountain at the museum, um, that we're utilizing the space, but uh, they will be fully functional by the end of the summer. So, um, yeah, those we are had, in the basement? yeah. The, so the soda fountain's in the basement and the cafeteria is on the first floor. Uh, so we've had some great events in those spaces. Uh, we've had some live musical performances in a salon style kind of environment. So maybe thirty people being able to like intimately uh, connect with the music that's being played in the space and just visitors. Um, from all over you know definitely kansas city but you know um folks from out of town and we've been tracking you know zip codes and all of those things to make sure that we're doing a good job of reporting um our our progress but it has been busy i promise you and i think it's because as you said people are just really ready to get back out in the world and to be in the company of other human beings
1: yeah we all hope so yeah yeah (laughs) definitely well glenn this is called let me be brief Mm-hmm. and uh we're we're getting to the point that it 's almost not going to be, so I gotta wrap it up sure it 's my least favorite part, <laughs> but it 's the best part uh, My last question, nothing to do with business what 's the coolest thing you 've ever done Wow
2: huh. that is a great question. I recently went to Ghana last summer i'd been wanting to uh go to uh, I'd always said i would not traveled outside of the country before and I said if I ever do I'd really love to go to West Africa and really you know I'm not at this point you know done a genealogical study of my family or anything but just always kind of felt a beckoning because I know that most of the kidnapped Africans came from the west coast of Africa. So there's a Professor Delia Gillis who I've done a lot of work with who was uh In Ghana for a a fellowship, you know, and so she made a lot of connections there and curated this incredible trip that allowed us to learn so much about uh, the history of the slave trade and. you know leaders like W. B. Du Bois, who uh, you know finished his life in Ghana, and Kwame Nkrumah, who was the first president of Ghana after their liberation from British rule, uh, and then to have the opportunity to visit uh, you know the slave castles and and the dungeons where kidnapped Africans were kept, and to just really have a deeper understanding of just how brutal that was and how you know unfortunately there're still vestiges of that 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 we're grappling with here in the united states so i know that's not a great note to end on <laughs> but that was the obviously to me one of the the coolest things that i've i've ever yeah. done and it's, it's totally like transformed you know who i am and and how i want to approach art and how i navigate the world
0: yeah. how how is sorry has yeah, no. Ghana as a country to visit yeah i mean is it third world is it very modernized within the city center what is it actually like yes (laughs) so uh... it
2: is both you see like abject poverty next to you know great wealth um but one of the things that was really um that i noticed and and i don't want to sound like the ugly american when i say this but um Because Delia had been there for a year and really knew the lay of the land, we spent time with people who were from Ghana, so it was not a touristy kind of a thing. We were very much immersed into an authentic experience, and so we ran into a lot of people who were really struggling. But I just had this sense that there was still happiness, there was still contentment. And I think that um, what happens in America is we really get caught up in consumerism, we really get caught up in materialism, and we think that things can make us happy. And uh, I think you find out if you're not used to having things, you know, you you really learn what life's about. So there was so much generosity coming from a place of need, and and I felt so welcome. You know, it was just an incredible experience. I
1: appreciate you sharing yeah thank you well we could keep going but i'm not going to part two part two another day (laughs) um you know on behalf of let it fly media and prize bank the j rigger co distillery and swell spark i'm so grateful that you came to share some time with us today i am too Um, please come visit us at the kansas city museum 3218
2: gladstone fantastic check out our website encourage our (laughs) listeners to come and see because
1: it's amazing so thank you
2: thank you